The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live. And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion, hosted by Michael Guyon. My name is Michael Gaia, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Joining me for the hour, Tom McClellan, who's a legend in the field. Tom, I appreciate you spending another hour with me on this space. So, Tom, before we um, get too deep into the dilemma, as I framed it uh, earlier, just introduce yourself to the audience, who you are, what's your background, and how'd you come up with the oscillator? Well, it wasn't me who came up with it. It was my parents, Sherman and Marion McClellan, back in 1969 when I was way more interested in skateboards and Hot Wheels than, than doing analysis of exponential moving averages. It's, it's amazing, though, as I got older, uh, how much smarter, smarter my parents got. And uh, I went off and had a life and in in a career outside of finance. I was uh, went, went to West Point, was an Army helicopter pilot for 11 years, got out in 1993 uh, and decided uh, that the, this market analysis thing was kind of interesting. And so I joined with my father, Sherman McClellan, in 1995, and we started our twice-monthly newsletter. We added a daily edition in 1998 and been publishing ever since. It's amazing uh, what when you have to write about the stock market every day, it tends to focus your mind more. And uh, it's a fun ride, though, because there's always something happening. Given the length of time you've been exposed to markets and the family history, which I can relate to, again, as I mentioned, my father had worked with Bob Farrell in the late 80s. Is there anything in terms of market structure or dynamics that you think has made analysis harder than it used to be, right? Because arguably, when you didn't have a computer decades ago, maybe you could identify technical patterns or trends and and play those before anybody else could. Talk through that dynamic for a bit. You know, that's true. You can do a a backtest study uh, if you get some historical data. And back in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, you could you could beat the market with just a simple moving average crossover trading strategy. You know, buy if it goes above the moving average, sell if it goes below the moving average. Moving average. The market used to trend a lot better back then, but the problem is you could never have traded that uh, strategy back then because commissions were three percent. There were no money market funds to park your money in. You you, you had uh, an eighth of a point bid ask spreads. So while in theory. Uh, if you could have traded the S&P 500 uh, that way, it would have worked great. It doesn't work great now because the market is much more efficient in terms of seizing on opportunities. So you have to turn to other things. So you hit on the term um, beat the market, which you often hear usually on, on commercials for 
different software packages. I've always been of the mindset that the only way to beat the average is to choose the right average, right? That it's not necessarily about the individual components with which you're investing or trading, but rather the right sector allocation, the right asset class. Talk through how you distinguish when is a good environment for stocks versus when's a good environment to play some other asset class. Because I think that's something which is really underappreciated, especially in a year like this year. That's an interesting question. The first thing to know, and I'll get around to that, but the first thing you have to know is that everything that we do uh, in the stock market or in life, everything is a trade. So if you go to work in a factory, you're trading your time for a paycheck. If you own the stock market or owns individual stocks, you're trading your cash for those shares or you're trading those shares to get back your cash uh, so that you can do something else. Everything is a trade. And so uh, different assets or different lifestyles or different things that you might involve in a trade come into and out of fashion at different times. Generally speaking, for the stock market, the key is liquidity. And liquidity is a really nebulous term. You can't see it. You can't measure it. It's like the wind. You can only observe it by seeing the effects of it. There's no direct measurement or there's no units of measure for liquidity. It generally refers to how far prices have to move in order to attract uh, a buyer or a seller. And so if you have a very liquid market, which the Fed is is a good agent of providing liquidity, then it shows up in lots of different ways. Most notably, it shows up in the breadth data, which we spent a lot of time tracking. The, the McClellan oscillator that my parents created back in 1969 uh, looks at the acceleration that takes place in the advanced decline data. And so when you see gobs of positive breadth, you know that liquidity is strong and the market can survive uh, other problems it might have if liquidity is strong. Uh, you know, because liquidity is not the only thing that drives the market. There's news events, there's mood, there's seasonality. Uh, but the market can get over those things if liquidity is strong. Right now, liquidity is not strong. Uh, there are multiple forces ganging up on the market to uh, to destroy liquidity. The first is that we've gone too far and too in too long having a strong liquidity period, and everybody's gotten used to that. And now the Fed is pulling away the punch bowl, and it's it's like I like I liken it to hydroponic gardening. You know, you can get really, really great crop yields for your tomatoes, your lettuce, if you engage in hydroponic gardening where you keep the roots of the plants in this slurry of water and nutrients and you provide all the exactly correct nutrients that the plants need and and exactly right light and temperature, and you can do great things and you can have abundant production. Hydroponic gardening is a whole lot of work and it's not very natural. A lot of people prefer organic gardening, where you use organic nutrients and, you, and organic processes and soil fungus and things that interact in the soil that provide all the things that a plant needs. You don't get as good of a crop yield if you're doing organic gardening as you as if you have synthetic fertilizer, but it can be nice in other ways. Well, if you try to shift suddenly from hydroponic gardening to organic gardening, you don't have all the mechanisms and soil microbes and everything in place to to run the garden nicely. It's the same thing when the Fed pulls away the punch bowl. And, and if you have, go from uh, QE with gobs of stimulus and providing all the nutrients that everything needs, and then suddenly yank that back and expect uh, the organic processes of the economy to work fine, you're not going to it's not going to go well, and, and uh, there's going to be a long process of adjustment as we all have to get used to the Fed not providing us all the money we want to do anything we want to do. You know, that, that term, the Fed pulls away the punch bowl, 
is often said in financial media. And what's interesting to me is that the Fed really has barely touched the punch bowl, yet liquidity has been horrendous really since February of last year, going back to that link you referenced around liquidity and breadth. Well, if you look at a lot of liquidity measures, uh, a lot of them started rolling over February of 2021. That's also when breadth started weakening. You started seeing a lot of nasty behavior beneath the surface. Now, I'm curious, how do you how do you think about contrarian trades when it comes to periods where breadth has been so poor as it has been this cycle, right? Because there's only really two kinds of trades anybody can do, right? Either it's trend following or it's mean reversion. How can you tell if 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 the trend is going to mean revert and breadth starts improving versus the risk of catching the falling knife? That is the essential question for where we are today on May 10th, 2022, because we are in a downtrend, but the market is arguably very oversold and sentiment is hugely bearish. Uh, those are conditions that tend to bring at least a bounce. And I'm looking for a bounce. I've been looking for a bounce for a long time, and I've been wrong for the last few days. It, it's not coming yet, but it's, it deserves to come. And all the setups are there. The seasonality still has a little bit of time to run. Uh, typically, uh, the, the seasonality for the Dow Jones Industrial Average peaks around May 12th. I think that's going to be a little bit late this year. I have other predictive tools that say May 19th to 23rd is when a top is due. That doesn't, uh, and it's hard to categorize what significance a top will have. That's a much harder thing. I, I, I can detect when the ripples are going to be, but I, what exactly they're going to look like, that's a harder, harder test. But the market is sure oversold enough to deserve a bounce, and everybody is expecting. Uh, everybody's if you go on. The TV networks are all arguing about how much lower the averages are going to go. Nobody's talking about how much higher it might bounce, but everybody's arguing about, oh, is the Dow going to stop at 28,000 or 26,000 on the way down? And usually when it's so skewed that way that everybody's arguing about how much further it'll go in a certain direction, that's usually when it's about done and it's and it's likely to reverse. But it's a hard question that you, you posed. It's the essential question. How do you know when the bounce is due to come? And how do you know that it's not that it's uh, just a bounce and not the start of a new trend? Those are the hard questions that uh, I grapple with every day. I am expecting that it's only going to be a bounce, and I'll be looking to get out and 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 expect that the normal weak seasonality of summertime is going to couple with the Fed dumping QT three on us. Uh, we, we've been through two rounds of quantitative tightening before. Uh, the first one went horribly. That was in 2008. And the Fed thought, oh, we need to cool down the economy because the real estate bubble, which had already peaked two years earlier, they decided to start selling off their treasuries in 2008. And they, they crashed Bear Stearns. They crashed Lehman Brothers. And, and the rest is well-known history. They tried it once again in 2018, uh, which didn't go as quite as horribly as the first time. Because thankfully we had some tax cuts that uh, the Trump administration had passed right when they got into office in 2017, so we had very low uh, federal income tax bite to kind of mediate and balance out the the Fed's yanking away the punch bowl. But it still caused a lot of volatility, and and most of, most of us who've been trading remember how how unpleasant it was in the fourth quarter of 2018, and that was because of the Fed uh, taking away a bunch of liquidity. Uh, now we have the Fed taking away liquidity. They're going to start QT3 in June uh, at $45 billion a month. 
and we have high taxes. We have the total federal tax bite is above 18% of GDP. That's the threshold that has always brought us a recession every time it's been reached since the 1930s when we first got into the current tax regime of, of Social Security and income taxes. And so every time you get above 18% of GDP in terms of the tax bite, you get a recession. So it shouldn't be a surprise that we're going to get a recession this time because we're already at 18.1% of GDP in, in tax bite for the federal government, plus we have QT. So our our overlords are really ganging up on us and trying to really put the screws to the to the economy and the market, uh, why they're doing that and, and why they're waiting until now to do it instead of getting it done when they should have done it. Uh, that's a great question for the economic historians to write about three or four years from now. I put out a tweet a couple of days ago saying that bear markets are notorious at embarrassing both bulls and bears, right? Because of the sequence of returns, because you could be in a bear market and have a rip-roaring rally that looks like it's the end of the bear market until, you know, it actually reverses and then you go lower lows. Now, I want to I go down a little bit further on this the, the, the bounce idea for a moment here because maybe it's faces in the cloud, but there is a bounce happening in the bond market, meaning yields are dropping after a horrendous collapse in price in a lot of these uh, bond funds. And treasuries really have been the real pain point. I, I keep seeing people saying that, this is just a standard run-of-the-mill correction, but you really don't have periods, even in the 70s, where you have a correction in stocks while treasuries, the flight-to-safety asset, collapse in the same way. And now maybe we're starting to see the reversal of that. kind of goes back to the point that to beat the average, you have to choose the right average. Talk about how you're viewing the bond market here. We'll talk about it in the context of gold and some of the cycle work you've done, but when you see the speed with which yields have risen and you see the complete devastation across asset classes where there's really nowhere to hide except you could argue commodities, but who knows how long that's going to last. How do you think investors should think about risk management in an environment where everything, including bonds, uh, seems risky? Well, I'm very, very positive on the treasury bond market uh, for the next several months. Uh, that's not the same thing as the entire bond market, but long-term treasuries I'm very positive on. One of the charts that I posted, uh, and you can look in my timeline, uh, posted a whole set of charts to lead up for this spaces conversation, uh, shows how the movements of gold prices tend to lead similar movements in bond yields, long-term bond yields. And so what I did was I compared the plot of gold prices to the Treasury Yield Index, which looks at the 30-year Treasury bond yield. And the key is that the plot of gold prices in that chart is shifted forward by 20 and a half months to reveal how its movements get echoed after that lag time in on bond yields. Well, gold prices peaked in August of 2020. So that should have meant a late April 2022 peak for bond yields. They went on a little bit further than they were supposed to, but today we're seeing uh, Treasury bond futures up two full points. So we're getting the, tre the Treasury yield index down quite nicely. So I think we're, we're at the turn. And I'm expecting uh, a nice time for Treasury bonds for most of the rest of, the, of 2022. Uh, we'll have an upturn late this fall, probably, in bond yields, meaning a downturn for prices. But uh, bonds are going to be a, a good place to hide out, which will be surprising to most people who <laughs> have been invested in or even watching the bond market during 2022 because of the sharp rise in yields that we saw earlier this year. What I think is happening is that bonds yields finally responded to all the signs of inflation that have been out there for a long time. 
which gold seems to pick up on in advance. Uh, we're seeing 8.5% CPI inflation. A lot of that is happening because of what's happening to oil, which also gold tells us about with a slightly different lag time. Uh, oil has about a 19 and a half month lag from what gold prices do. And so the peak in gold should mean a peak for oil prices. And I think we've seen that. It got a little bit thrown off by the Russia-Ukraine situation, which disrupted the oil market in a slight way, just kind of magnifying what was already happening. But now the the high prices are doing their job and we're going to see a, a little bit of destruction of demand. Uh, we also tend to typically see gasoline prices peak in May of every year as a normal seasonal event. Uh, part of that is because uh, purchasing at the, the inventories ahead of the summer driving. Part of it also is prices tend to peak when all the refineries are doing their changeover from the winter blend to the summer blend. They're going to allow refineries to continue doing the winter blend for a while into the summer to hopefully mitigate that. But that's a normal thing to see gasoline prices peak in May. So I think we're going to start to see inflation rates coming down. We're already seeing that in one of the charts that I posted in preparation for this interview. It looks at industrial metals like aluminum and lead. Uh, uh, copper prices have been falling. So that's an early warning of inflationary pressures going to start to come down. The CPI tends to lag that kind of change by a couple of months, but we're already seeing the industrial metals starting to roll over and head down. So that's a hint that inflation is going to moderate. It can still be high and awful, even if it moderates downward somewhat from 8.5. You know, if inflation were to fall to 6%, that'd be a nice drop, but it's still 6% destruction of your money every year. So it's not like inflation is going to go away, but I think it's going to be less severe than it is now. And I think that the bond market is going to is slowly realizing that and is going to start to adjust to that new inflation reality over the next few months. And so I'm excited about Treasury bonds as a good place to be for the next few months. It's part of our human nature that we always want to know how big a move is going to be ahead of time. Uh, it's inescapable a part of our how our brains work. We want to know, well, how, how much how far is it going to go? That's that's natural. If you look ahead to the football game on Sunday, how many points are they going to score? That's just how our brains work. However, that's not how the market works. If you're going to get a bounce, you and I and anybody else investing cannot get out of that bounce any more bounce than there is. We, we, if it's only going to be a 5% bounce, then, then it, it doesn't matter if we wanted it to be a 10% bounce. It doesn't matter. We can only get what the market's going to give us. And so the key is to identify the when when is the bounce coming? When is it the bounce done? What are the factors that tell us that as opposed to counting our chickens ahead of time about how much of a bounce we're going to get? And I realize that I'm, I'm, as I tell you this, I'm going against my own human nature and yours and everybody else's because part of our human brains is to want to know how, how big it's going to be. But we just don't get to do that that way. We have, we have to adjust ourselves to the rules of the, of the game we're playing. I, I look at everything and I keep what works and what, and throw out what doesn't. I, I'm observing the extreme oversold nature of lots of indicators that I watch, including indicators tied to breath data. Uh, the high-yield bond advanced decline data is something that FINRA puts out on their website is something that I think is really fascinating because the high-yield bonds are uh, among the most liquidity-sensitive issues out there. They're the real canaries in the coal mine that are going to roll over and die before the big caps socks do. And they have just been getting spanked horribly to the point that it's too much. Uh, they have, you know, 
bad can be can be bad while it's bad, but when it gets too bad, then it turns to be good. And I think that we have seen that point. I think that tomorrow's inflation the report uh, the CPI is due out on May 11th, Wednesday. So I think that that could be a spark for getting people to start feeling like, oh, there's some relief ahead. If CPI doesn't keep going up, then there's some chance for relief, and that and that could be part of the spark that change, changes human hearts and gets them believing in the idea that we can have a bounce. Um, that's just a possibility. I'm, I'm really lousy at identifying what the news event is going to be that is going to bring about the turn, but I'm, I'm better at identifying when the turns are going to come. I do watch seasonality, and seasonality was working great for a lot of the last several months, except for anomalous events like when we found out about Omicron. And back in November, December last year, that threw the market for a loop that seasonality didn't explain about. But the market got back to following the annual seasonal pattern quite nicely until Russia invaded Ukraine. And then the market dropped a little bit in a way that wasn't explained by seasonality. And then the market got back on track again. Now we're in a, in a big drop, right, that, that we've seen for the last four or five weeks caused by Powell opening his mouth and, and talking about what is going to happen with interest rates. And that, too, is not according to the seasonal script. But I think that we're going to get back on that script as we do when the market oversteers and, and goes off track a little bit. It tries to oversteer again and, and get back on track. And, and we're going to see the market try to get back upward toward what is supposed to be a May peak in seasonality. Uh, and we'll have a lot of makeup time to, to go for having steered so far off track just to get itself back to what is a normal behavior. And then we can get back to the normal seasonal weakness in the summer. I'm looking for a, a decline into July. I'm looking for another decline into September, October as part of the normal seasonal bottom, especially since we're in the second year of a presidential term. There's typically a weak spot just ahead of the midterm elections. And so couple those weak factors with what the Fed is doing to us uh, or what it says it thinks it's going to be doing to us. That, that's a big negative. We could also see the Fed realizing the error of its ways and decide to throttle back on the, the announced plans for quantitative tightening. The, the current Fed leadership doesn't tend to be very responsive to, to market conditions as opposed to what it has said it wants to do because it doesn't want to lose its credibility. So that once they get a plan, they tend to stick to it. But we did see them change their minds in, in early 2019 and, and stop the quantitative tightening that they had been doing. So it is possible that, that the Fed could change its mind and not follow through with what they've said they're going to do. And that's a that's a risk factor for anybody wanting to short the market this year. There's something you said, which I want to I want to hit on for a second here, Tom. You said you keep what works and you throw out what doesn't work. I want to focus on the throw out what doesn't work, because there's a challenge in knowing if something's not working because of the here and now small sample or if it's because of some randomness that might occur because it's a false signal for a moment in time, right? I've had this question quite a bit on the road when it comes to how do you know if an indicator is broken if it hasn't been working the last several months? Do you just give up on it? And my response is you really don't. As long as the causation is there, you can still bet that history will repeat. But it's not going to repeat every single time. So, so I want you to talk through to the audience your, your way of thinking about whether something is, as an indicator, quote-unquote, broken. That's a really good point. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. 
Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. And as humans, we all have good days and bad days. Uh, if you have a bad day, that doesn't mean you should take your life because there will be good days that come around. Uh, if you can test something for a long enough period back in, in time, you'll see when it had good periods and bad periods, and you hope that the good periods were strong enough to outweigh the bad periods so that you, it, by systematically following it, you end up coming out ahead over time. But you know that nothing's going to work perfectly all the time. And you know that Eisenhower's going to have a heart attack or Kennedy's going to get assassinated or there's going to be an Arab oil embargo that's going to throw things off for a while. And then those will those will pass and we can get back to working. So you want to follow systems and indicators and principles that have a long-term track record of working, even though you know there sometimes they're not going to work. It's tough to identify that something's not working as it's happening because, oh, is it one bad day or is it a bad month or is it a bad three months? And, and that can be hard to, to analyze in real time. But you know that things are going to come around if you've tested it well enough and for long enough. That you, you know that you've got a, a principle or a system or a phenomenon that has merit, even if it gets interrupted by, by forces temporarily. Mike, you're really good at throwing out the authority questions. Well, no, but but it's true because I think people say that, and I think it intuitively makes sense. But it's like, like I'm talking about this, about this from experience, right? So I've had people say, "Well, your your indicator is broken." Well, I don't know that, and neither does the person that's accusing me of of following an indicator they think is broken. It's only with hindsight, and you, as you know, right? You can have an indicator which is wrong nine out of ten times, but if you get it right that tenth time, it's everything. Right. And and part of the, the quest for information is if you can say that it is broken, well, and you could, might want to dig under the hood and say, well, why is it broken? And what was the cause of it breaking? And is that factor still with us? One of the charts that I posted in preparation for this looks at money supply M2 divided by GDP. And that's a good way to look at it because just looking at raw money supply without Balancing it for the size of the economy can can mislead you. But if you get a big surge in the money supply, which the Fed authored thanks to COVID, and if the the GDP doesn't rise to to absorb all that, then that all that extra money goes looking for a job. And what typically happens is when you get a big surge in the M2 divided by GDP, about a year later, you get a big surge in the stock market. There's a little bit of a lag in terms of the way that that plays out. Well, that surge is already done in M2. We're now flattened out M2. And so it's uh, balanced out against GDP. The surge is already done. So waiting on that one year lag for the stock market, we're now into the sideways period of what that M2 to GDP ratio is, is saying. And so we shouldn't not expect the continued surge in the stock market that we enjoyed in 2020 and 21, because all that excess money is no longer being created and going looking for a job. So anything that that was based on how the market used to work in a normal money supply situation, that any any model like that got thrown off during 2020 and 2021 because of the extra money sloshing around. So now if you've adjusted your model to expect the 2020 and 2021 monetary conditions to continue working and the Fed has turned off that faucet, now anything that, that is expecting 
continuation of that condition is not going to work anymore. So it's it's good to dig under the hood and, and look at who's monkeying around with the levers of power and the levers of liquidity, and what's that going to mean for going forward? The turning off of that spigot of, of money supply is a, a big negative factor. Seasonality is a big negative factor. And now we have quantitative tightening thrown on top of that. So it's really tough for any bullish stock market argument to try to outweigh those big three negative macro forces. And it's we can get a bounce for a while, if, especially if people think there's a good reason for a bounce. But uh, it's going to be swimming upstream. One of the things that we look at with the McClellan oscillator that my parents developed is the way that it shows us overbought conditions. You can get overbought in a bounce. You can also get overbought in the initiation of a strong new uptrend. And so, for example, all during 2008, the bear mar- that big, awful bear market, there were bounces that occurred and that brought McClellan oscillator readings north of 200. And the nature of the of the failing bounces was that they produced very high McClellan oscillator readings, but they produced simple structures and then McClellan oscillator when it was above zero. In other words, the oscillator went straight up and straight down. It didn't spend any time above zero building what we call complexity, where it chops up and down while it stays above zero. That changed in March of 2009 when the strong initiation of what turned out to be the new uptrend brought a really high McClellan oscillator reading, and it stayed high, and it, st- and it chopped around up and down well above zero. That is different behavior when you're initiating a new uptrend versus when you're just having a bounce. And so evaluating how the bounce goes and what kind of things it can accomplish and whether it flames out right away will tell you something about whether it's just a bounce or whether it's a new uptrend. I normally, when I'm talking about long-term interest rates, I'm looking at the very far end of the curve, looking at the intermediate part of the curve, the 2 to 3, 5, 7, 10. That's a lot squishier because you can get effects from both the short end and the long end, and you get the <laughs> the, the tug-of-war, and you're in the middle, and, and you can get magnified effects. The, the long end tends to be more pure in terms of what drives it, meaning inflation and and expectations of economic growth as opposed to in the middle where you can get you can get other effects that confound what you're trying to do expectations of one one of the other things i would tell you about long-term interest rates is that we got um news from the climate folks and i'm going to branch off into a, a kind of a weird segue right here right now in the pacific ocean there is a very strong la nina condition meaning cool ocean waters along the equator stretching from South America to the Western Pacific in, in Malaysia area. That is a factor that tends to bring about global cooling generally of all temperatures around the world. Uh, the Pacific Ocean is the big radiator where a lot of heat gathers or a lot of heat gets radiated. Uh, El Nino means it, uh, heat is accumulating and that tends to bring warmth around the world. It also tends to bring a lot more precipitation and good farming conditions when you have El Nino. When you have La Nina, it means a lot of excess heat is getting radiated out into the into the outer space, and you tend to get cooling conditions around the world. And that's not good news for things like agriculture and disasters. Uh, you tend to get more hurricanes and tornadoes and, and adverse weather events during La Nina 
conditions or following La Nina conditions than you do during El Nino. And so the very strong La Nina effect that we're having now is going to have big inflationary effects about three years from now. There's a, a very strong correlation between global average temperatures and CPI inflation with about a three-year lag. And the economist camp doesn't tend to pay attention to meteorology. The meteorology camp doesn't tend to pay to pay attention to economics. And so that's why nobody else but me has seemed to ever notice that, the, that there ought to be a linkage and to go look for it. So the, the bad news is that inflation is going to be with us for a while. It's going to take a break for the rest of 2022 and start coming down. But it's going to be with us again uh, as this big La Nina condition in the Pacific starts to have its effect on us about three years from now. There's also a, a very, very long cycle in both climate data and in interest rates about, of about 60 years duration. Uh, we were due to have an upturn in bond yields from a load that was due in 2010 as part of that 60-year cycle. It got delayed because global average temperatures stayed warm in the last decade, and that has kept interest rates low. Let me say that again. Warmer temperatures mean low interest rates. Cooling temperatures means rising interest rates. And so we are due to have a cooling period as part of the normal 60-year climate cycle. And that cooling period is due to last until about 2035, which should mean rising interest rates lasting until about 2040. And so if you refinanced your home mortgage in the 3% range, congratulations to you. That was sure fun. You can tell your grandchildren about it because they won't ever get to know about that. It was a fun time for those who got to participate, but we're looking at a very, very long uptrend in interest rates due to last until about 2040. And by, that would be the equivalent of the 1980 or 1920 uh, peaks in interest rates. The, this cycle in, in interest rates is, goes back for as long as there's genuine data on interest rates, which is to about the mid-1700s. Before then, there, there were interest rates, but it wasn't quite the same kind of bond market and interest condition that we have now so that we can really make long-term comparisons. And we, we only have about 150 good years of temperature data because that's about how long there have been reliable thermometers. Um, but we, we can use other proxies for climate to show that the, the phenomenon goes back a lot longer in time. So we're into a cooling period that the La Nina condition shows us now that's going to be a big factor not in 2022, but it's going to be, a, it's happening in 2022, and it's going to be a big factor about three years from now for inflation. And it's part of a larger uh, cooling trend and a larger rising interest rate trend that's due to last for a couple more decades. I wonder how it would dovetail with demographics and, and broader debt, right? Because the issue that I have with this narrative that inflation stays elevated and that interest rates will stay elevated is debt is accelerating. It's not, debt is not just staying elevated, it's actually accelerating. Is, is there anything that you think cycle-wise counters that, that secular narrative on rates because there's other secular trends at play that might be maybe more powerful? We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So... 
How Do You Dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. Debt is accelerating, certainly at the federal level. Personal debt uh, actually dropped a little bit thanks to all the money that uh, the federal government sprinkled around for COVID. People got the uh, the special COVID money and they paid off their credit card balances and they and they took advantage of the low interest rates that the that the Fed was engineering in response to COVID and they refinanced their homes and so personally people got in better conditions for for debt than they had been for a while. That'll start to unwind itself as unemployment starts to rise. We see unemployment tends to lag changes in consumer sentiment by about 10 months. And the Michigan consumer sentiment data has been horrible for the last approximately nine to 10 months. And so we're due for an upward inflection in the unemployment rate, which I'm sure will surprise the Fed and everybody else who's watching it. And that'll probably start to mitigate the worries about high interest rates and and be one of the reasons that bond prices do well and interest rates come down this year. But the federal government has taken on all of that burden that would have been personal debt increases and, and turned it into federal debt. We've got a $30 trillion debt burden that I don't know how we ever pay off since we can't ever even uh, a surplus for more than a, a month. And uh, we don't have a Congress that seems to think that that's an important issue to tackle. They may start to think that's an important issue to tackle when the interest rate that the Treasury Department has to pay on all that debt goes up to three or four or five percent as opposed to just being at one or two percent and then it's going to start getting everybody's attention and it won't be a, a painless or or pleasant exercise to go through it'll, it'll be unpleasant and for a long time especially the the stronger that anybody in power tries to take action to deal with it uh, paying off debt is an unpleasant thing no matter who has to do it and It'll be unpleasant when the federal government has to do it, but we do need to solve the problem so we don't leave it to our grandchildren and and get to a point where we just have to print our way out of the debt like Zimbabwe did. What I tend to do is I look back far enough in history, and and even if I cannot provide an answer of why something is happening, if I can see well enough that it is happening, it's an actual phenomenon, then the why doesn't matter. Uh, I don't know exactly why the light comes on when I flip the switch. I think there are people who can explain that better than I can, but I can still operate the light without knowing why. And I can still get insights from gold about what crude is going to do without knowing the why of it. So I don't tend to spend a, a whole lot of time uh, searching for the why. I do know that it didn't work uh, in the early 20th century because gold prices were fixed. And so by fixing the gold price, instead of letting it float, the federal government was stomping all over that message only by allowing it to float and find its own level. Then, then the messenger can, can come through and we can get that answer. It's a fascinating thing also that it's about a 19 and a half month lag for oil prices from what gold did. And it's about a 20 and a half month lag for bond yields. So that should tell you that, uh, Oil prices should lead bond yields by about three or four weeks, which is sort of true, but it breaks down a little bit if you try to follow that. There's some wiggliness between the data. They don't ever match each other perfectly, uh, but the dance steps are all there. I liken it to if 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 I were to dance at Charleston and if Fred Astaire were to dance at Charleston, you could perhaps recognize that it was a Charleston, but it would be a whole different experience of watching each of those things happen. So it's 
about watching the timing of the dance steps that Gold tells us about, not necessarily about the magnitude of the movements or about replicating it perfectly, but it's a it's an enduring phenomenon that's been going on for, for a really long time. One of the other fascinating lead-lag relationships that I've found is looking at crude oil prices, uh, and they give about a 10-year leading indication for what the stock market is going to do, which feeds into the negative outlook for the next decade or so because crude oil prices peaked back in April 2011. And then the fracking boom led to a big decline in, in oil prices. And so we're now in the 10-year echo of that of, of that effect for the stock market. The, the flat decade that crude oil prices had in the 2010s means a flat decade uh, for stock prices in the 2020s. And when I say flat, I don't mean dead flat. I don't mean like the prairie. I mean violently flat. Well, think of the 1970s. That was a flat market. You didn't make any upward or downward progress, but you had some violent episodes during that, like the 1973-74 bear market and another one in 78, but some and some big rebounds in between. And then finally, you got to 1982 and you had an upturn that was a new trend. And that's one of the difficult things we talked about earlier is how do you tell when it's a, a pop or a rally versus a new trend? And that's among the hard, harder questions that we ever face in analysis. Uh, the 1930s was violently flat. Uh, so it, we've seen these things before. We're due for one now on about the 40-year cycle that happens in the stock market. And so when you're in a violently flat market, you can still make money, but you can't make money the same way that you made money in the 80s and 90s, where you buy and hold and, and expect the trend to bail you out. It just doesn't work that way. You have to buy low and sell high and repeat that process a lot. And so you have to change the tools that you use to watch for market conditions. You have to understand the condition you're in and not expect that the old rules of buy and hold that we were all taught and lived through are going to work. And the reason that these things happen on, a, on about a 40-year cycle is that anybody who was trading and investing in the 1970s is probably no longer involved professionally now. They have aged themselves out of the game. And so that institutional memory is gone. All of the young money managers who are working for Fidelity or Russell or, or Goldman Sachs have all been raised in the 80s, 90s, and 2000s period where buy and hold works and the Fed always bails you out. And they don't know any other set of rules for how things are supposed to happen. And so the market likes to frustrate the majority. And now there's a whole new majority and all the old people that remember how to trade in the 1970s are gone. And so the market will reintroduce us all to that sort of environment just to frustrate the majority. Well, but, that, but that's an interesting thing. And that's a good direction to, to close off, which is whipsaw risk in, in environments like this, because you think a trend's starting, and then you go in, and then you get your ass handed the other way, and then you try and short, and then it's the opposite, right? So, in those kind of environments, Tom, just from a positioning perspective, is is it as simple as saying, well, just you got to size your positions more carefully if, if we're entering that kind of environment, or do you say to yourself, uh, you just don't play it at all? What, what, what's, what should a typical investor do if, if you're in a sort of a, a violently flat type of cycle? Understand that it's a different game, that you can't play the game like you've played it before. You have to change the, what shoes you're wearing if you're running track versus if you're playing soccer on a muddy field. you got to change your strategy for how you trade in the stock market 
or any other type of market in, in a different kind of environment because the old ways just don't work. The whole idea of strategic asset allocation and, and sector rotation and the bull market will, will just bail you out. That's not going to work in the 2020s. And so buy low, sell high, repeat, buy low, sell high, repeat. And, and that's the game that we're now in and that's going to be lasting. And we're going to have a really, really ugly period in late 2024, according to oil's leading indication. Uh, late 24 is going to be a really ugly period. So get yourself ready for that. And uh, sitting in cash can sometimes be an okay thing, which is hard for us to, to do. Can you imagine, Michael, can you imagine sitting in cash for six months? Can you imagine your, your brain and your, and your emotions uh, doing that? That's a really hard thing for people to do because we got itchy trigger figures. We, we don't want to just wait for, for a, an animal to die in front of us like a vulture has to do. We want to go out and kill something. That's our nature. Uh, but sometimes sitting in cash is the right thing to do. And it's also even that is also very tricky. I mean, you know, cash works in a period like the last six months. But to your point, the temptation is very high to start deploying that cash. But then on top of that, cash is notoriously difficult to time anyway. Right. I mean, yes, it's worked the last six months, but you know, all the studies on market timing show that market timing doesn't work because the risk off asset is cash and cash has no momentum. So it kind of goes to your point. It's very hard to be in cash, but there is there is an argument for having the probability of compounding by being in something other than cash, even though that probability may be low, right? And, and that's maybe sort of a, a discussion for another space. So everybody that's been here, please make sure you follow Tom. Check out the McClellan Market Report, his website. Tom, I, uh, I, I want to have you on at some point with John Bollinger, who I had also as a, as a guest at some point. I'll try to set that up because listening to guys like you who have seen it all, done it all, been through all kinds of different cycles, FinTwit needs more of that instead of these uh, fly-by-night gurus. So thank you for imparting your your knowledge to the audience here. Well, it's my pleasure. John's a friend for a long time. He does great work. He does different work than I do, and, and that's fine. He's been through a few more of these cycles than I have, but I, I've tried to go through them virtually by crawling through the charts and crawling through the data historically. I, I only got in this business after I got out of the Army, so I haven't. I didn't live through the 1970s as an investor and a trader but I've tried to live through them vicariously uh, in the data and try to learn from that. And I think that more people who do that and get themselves acquainted with with environments other than what we've got all gotten used to, they will have better insights and, and hopefully do better. Amen to that. Thank you, everybody, for joining. Appreciate it. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.